This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by the Ashland University Low Res MFA, where our accomplished faculty help you find your voice and complete your degree at your own pace. Learn more and enroll today at ashland.edu. And we're brought to you in part by Pegasus Books, offering a huge selection of new, used, and sale titles. Pegasus Bookstores are welcoming and inclusive neighborhood spaces where we believe in the printed word and in the alchemy of sharing books with one another. Find your next great read and shop online at pegasusbookstore.com. I'm Anne Marie Kelly. Welcome to Wild Precious Life, a podcast about dreaming big and making real connections. In each episode, I talk to prize winning writers, musicians, and entrepreneurs who teach all of us how to make the most of the time we have. I ask folks on this show sometimes who was one of your best teachers, but I don't think I've ever answered that myself um, because I'm lucky to have had a bunch of them. Mrs. Lank saw promise in my writing back when I was in high school. My college coach, Christina Escunas, led the first writing workshop I ever participated in. I was terrified, like practically peeing my pants, afraid to share my work. What if it wasn't any good? What if nobody liked it? And sometimes it wasn't, and they didn't. But she taught me the value of putting one word in front of the other, journaling, and always being able to find something that worked. A paragraph, a sentence, a word, anything that pointed me in the direction I wanted to go. And I could list many, many more. I have been a fortunate student and learner. Today's guest, for instance, has also been my teacher. Naomi Munavira is a master writing instructor. She has this way of zeroing in on the one hard truth you were trying to hide on the page. She will see glorious potential in your work when all you see is failure. And she'll call you on your bullshit. More than anything else, she inspires me to write my best because her writing is so brilliant. And I'm super excited today to introduce you to this amazing woman. Naomi Munavira is a Sri Lankan American writer and author of Island of a Thousand Mirrors, which won the Commonwealth Prize for Asia in 2013 and What Lies Between Us, which won the Sri Lankan National Book Award for Best English Novel. Naomi was named one of 12 women writers of color you need to know by Bustle Magazine and one of the Asian American women writers who is going to change the world by Electric Literature. Her prose has been called visceral and indelible and devastatingly beautiful. And Naomi has co-taught writing workshops in Sri Lanka through a program called Write to Reconcile, which aims to use creative writing as a tool of reconciliation and healing for survivors of the Civil War. 
Naomi Munavira, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Yay, I'm so thrilled to be here with you, Anne-Marie. It is so nice to see your face, my friend. <laughs> you too, across well, the country. Right? We're just kind yeah. of cuddled up, cuddled up here with our beverages and just get a chance to talk across the miles. Like, what a gift. I think that over the last 18 months, I, I don't know, I feel like we've all realized what a gift it is to connect with people. So thanks for making time. Absolutely. I would just love it if you would tell listeners who aren't familiar with you, if you would just tell us your story. I was born in 1973 in Sri Lanka. And in 1976, my family left and we all moved to Nigeria. Um, and we were we were going for economic reasons. So, you know, a war would happen later in Sri Lanka, but we didn't leave for that reason. So in 1976, I'm three years old. Me and my mom and dad, we moved to Nigeria. We're there till 84. And, you know, in that time, I was growing up, going back and forth. We would go back to Sri Lanka for about a month every year. So it was quite pivotal for me um, to go to Sri Lanka and have that sort of like bi-cultural, bi-continental, I suppose, childhood. And then in 1984, what happens is there's a military coup in Nigeria and we had to leave very quickly. Um, and then meanwhile... In 1983, a civil war had started in Sri Lanka, which would then go on till 2009. So I, that's a lot of dates, but um, just... There will be a quiz afterwards. <laughs> I hope listeners are taking notes. There will be points awarded and there will be a quiz. And we ended up in Los Angeles, which, you know, it was like a strange place to go from pretty rural Nigeria. Um, and then, yeah, I get to... LA, I don't know where I am for a long time. There's this like super disconnect that a young immigrant has, sort of dislocation in time and space. Um, and then fast forward, I go to undergrad, I get a degree in English. I decide I'm going to be a professor of English. I do a PhD. And at the very end of that PhD in September 2001, which is insane, I just, you know, I'm not sure that I want to write this dissertation. I start instead writing fiction. And after a sort of long, complicated battle with myself, I dropped out of my program in September 2001. I moved, I think, on the 1st of September to the Bay Area, and I started writing a novel. It took me 10 years to finish that first book. It took another two to find a publisher. My first publisher was in Sri Lanka because the American houses didn't want the book. Um, and then this small house in Sri Lanka said yes to the book, which was very exciting because, as I said, you know, I had not grown up in Sri Lanka during the war years, which were 84 to 2009. Um, and I had this huge question of like, is it my story to tell? Can I write about this? My book, Island of a Thousand Mirrors, is about the civil war in Sri Lanka. Um, and then, you know, this book got picked up in Sri Lanka. It was then picked up in India at which point it was up for a whole bunch of prizes internationally, at which point the Americans started calling me. Um, there was a mini bidding war for my book, and St. Martin's gave me a two-book deal. So first book, Island of a Thousand Mirrors, came out in 2012. Second book, What Lies Between Us, came out in 2016. And right now I'm hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, like pray to all the gods, at the very end of a third novel. But we shall see. I have read Island of a Thousand Mirrors. And I don't think until I listened to you tell the story just now, I don't think I realized how you were actually navigating between not one 
not two, but actually three different cultures at three different periods of time, all of which were negotiating this balance between war and and a lack, I guess, of peace. So you left Sri Lanka before the war. I, I get that. But you guys went back, I, right? I think I've heard you talk about this. You guys would go back to Sri Lanka as a child. Do you remember I, I, visiting a country? Did you know that there was a war happening? Oh, yeah. From the airport to your house, there were, there, there were years when there were checkpoints. So there would be young soldiers with guns. Um, and they would stop the car. They would pull everything out. They would look at all your um, suitcases, open everything. Again, we were in real trouble, you know, because we were coming from abroad. We were Sinhalese. Later, we would have American passports. So there was never like a real threat. But yeah, as a kid, absolutely. And then being in Sri Lanka during like bomb blasts or seeing it on the news, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the news in Sri Lanka was often like carnage of bus bombings or suicide bombings and those kind of things. Um, there's, I, I, I'm going to tell this story, like I don't want it to sound like I'm sort of padding it, but this is a thing that happened at some point when I was in Sri Lanka. I must have been about, I want to say 14. And um, my 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 aunt is a horticulturalist, so we went to this like big flower show that she was showing at, and we went there, and we were all you know in this huge building, and my cousins and I walked outside to get ice cream, and as we walked out, there was this like really loud noise, um, and the place had been bombed, and you know no one had been killed, but when we walked back in, they were bringing out stretchers of people that were bleeding, and in my aunt's flower stall there was like shrapnel in the wall so you know there were these kind of moments and then that night you go to dinner and you kind of laugh about it and joke around because that's just the way folks dealt with it you know because we were not the people that really suffered in that war the people that really suffered were Tamil people in the north of the country um and then sort of to dovetail with that like later when my book came out my book came out in Sri Lanka in 2012 Um, And there were pro-government newspapers, right, that would, um, at the launch of my book, for example, this pro-government guy showed up and my publisher said this would happen. And he said, you know, you're American. How dare you? You don't know anything about this country. And I said, well, have you have you even read the book? And he said, no. I said, "Okay, well, you should probably read the book, Um, at which point people started clapping. And then he had to sit down and he's sort of notorious in Sri Lanka for doing this kind of stuff. Um, But then he wrote this article calling me a cheerleader from L.A. um, And it was really aggressive. It said we should give her to the army and see what they do with her. Um, Oh, my God. That's awful. Yeah. So considering what happens to a woman given to the army or not given, you know, in conflict with the army in my book, there's like a not so veiled threat. So there are these moments. Right. And again, at that point, I had an American passport, which protected me and that continues to protect me so you know it's like uh it's it really has to be put in the context of I'm not a Tamil writer and that would be a completely different situation I probably would not be able to write this book or a book about this um this war I'm thinking about what it was like to be a child going back to Sri Lanka and simultaneously being told that you have nothing to fear but also 
being afraid. So having adults tell you it's going to be okay, but looking around and having a different experience there throughout the book, because of course this is a book, Island of a Thousand Mirrors, talks about both perspectives. And I know there are many perspectives in war, but but you're looking at the two sides that are fighting and you and you do show it to us first through the eyes of children. Something is happening. The adults aren't telling us what it is and we're afraid. And I... I have never been to Sri Lanka, truthfully, honest to goodness, knew very little about this war, a war that happened during my and your lifetime. My experiencing it in the book was through the eyes of these children, and it was terrifying to be told simultaneously that everything's okay, but to know, as these children knew, that everything is not okay, to be told by adults, we will keep you safe, but for these children to know, I don't think you can. Um, so I think some of that, some of that visceral experience of you going back to Sri Lanka, despite the fact that you say, I did not, we didn't live, we didn't leave because of war. We weren't there throughout. I I do think some part of that experience has found your way into the writing and the way you write children and fear, um, I found incredibly powerful. Mm, Thank you. Thank you, Anne-Marie. I was really trying, you know, um, you said you didn't know a lot about that war. I mean, there are these wars all over the world that we know nothing about, right? Um, folks are often like, I know nothing about the history of Sri Lanka. Well, I'm like, well, we don't know about the history of anywhere. <laughs> we really don't. Um, there are just dozens of these conflicts, maybe hundreds of them that we know nothing about. So I don't expect people to know anything about Sri Lanka. Um, and yeah, it's really, you're totally right. It is like a pervasive Thing. And I think what the way that I'm talking about it also points to a sort of um, maybe survivor guilt, right? Like growing up in a different country and not participating. Um, a thing that always stays with me is my, I have a cousin who's my age and he, exactly my age, and he grew up and went in Sri Lanka and then went to Britain and decided to go back to Sri Lanka and live there and make a life there during the war years, which is sort of this very, very brave thing. And he has two daughters. And I remember him saying um, when during the war years that his wife and him each would take a girl and get on a different bus just in case there oh was like God. a bombing. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, man, this is oh like my God. what people were living with. So meanwhile, you know, we're in America and safe. Um so all of that, right? Like, how do you, I think when I was writing that book, I'm like, how do I have people understand what it means to be both there and then not there? The war ended in 2009. And now I know young Sri Lankan kids, like they they don't even know, which is strange. I don't even know if our history is alive for folks. There's definitely a push culturally, maybe even governmentally to forget and sort of get on with it, um, which is such a South Asian thing. My God, like we don't, I, I, like, I don't think we've even dealt with the trauma of partition, let alone what happened in Sri Lanka, you know? Um, we haven't dealt with like millions of Bengalis starving because Churchill sent the grain somewhere else. Um, we haven't dealt with that. It's like a lot of unprocessed trauma. No, I thought I saw that very much in your book as as I won't give the way give it away to folks, but the idea with after a nationwide trauma, how do you heal? Because moving on is actually not the same as healing, right? Moving on and saying, huh, 
we're so glad that's over, is not the same as looking people in the eye and listing the ways in which you've sinned or begging for forgiveness um, or admitting the ways in which the war, in this case, on on both sides, uh, went on so long that people forgot what it was they were fighting for or or against, um, and everyone everyone lost in that war. So you were a child in Sri Lanka, but you you left when you were three. So then you went to Nigeria, and you would have stayed there till you. It sounds like you were about twelve. Twelve, yeah. Okay, so do you have any memories of Nigeria of that of that place? What was it like to be there? Oh, it was fantastic. Um, every, I mean, everything is colored by this nostalgic need for childhood again. So who knows, right, what it was really like. But just it was, an, it was a pretty good childhood. It was um, in a rural Nigerian village town called Sokoto, which is in the north. Um, there were nomadic tribes, Fulani, who, who would bring their... Um, heads of cattle through and it was tribes people like many different kinds of tribes people Yoruba um, and Igbo and Hausa um, and I went to an English-speaking school um, and then you know there were a lot of animals around which I really loved. What was it like to move from Nigeria from a, a rural village in Nigeria to be dropped as a pre-teenager into Los Angeles, California? <laughs> That's a great question. And I just want to back up a bit. You know, we got to Nigeria in 1976, and they had just gone through the Biafra War, which, you know, Chimamanda Adichie has written about in Half a Yellow Sun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as a child, obviously, as a three-year-old, I had no idea. But I do remember being in the backyard and picking up shell cases um, so that was, yeah, that was also a thing that happened. So that, you know, is also the background of like us coming in as Asians, um, basically for economic survival. You know, the economy in Sri Lanka was really bad. My dad's an engineer, not an oil engineer, um, a civil engineer. And we went to Nigeria to make money and survive. Um, so I just want to also put that into context. You know, we're coming at the end of British colonization, we're coming at the end of a really brutal civil war that Nigeria underwent. Um, 84, we moved to LA. I just don't know. It's like crazy, right? Um, it was all very confusing. I like I spoke English pretty well, but I didn't understand anybody's accent. I didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't know what cookies were. Um, we said biscuits, right? <laughs> biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> I thought people saying hi sounded really stupid. Um, and all of that, and also nobody understood me. So I was like in a remedial English class for a couple of months before they were like, oh, she just has an accent, right? Um, wow. Gosh, what can I say? Like, I was also within a Sri Lankan community. Um, my uncle is... This is in Los Angeles. I'm in the Bay now, but my uncle's still in LA, and he um, he gives jobs to a lot of Sri Lankan folks. So he sponsored us, and that's why we were able to show up. I I don't know with maybe I want to say a suitcase each, and maybe a trunk. Not a lot of things, you know. And we lived in a one bedroom apartment. It was my parents, my sister who was three, me, my grandma, and my aunt. So there were like six of us. Two bedrooms, two bedrooms, sorry. Um, 
it was real tight for a while. And again, like, I just didn't know anything, you know, like it was just profound dislocation. I had no idea the size of this country. Um, I just felt very, I think, confused for a long time. Um, and then also sort of closeted within my own immigrant community for a long time. Um, and it wasn't until later in my teens when I started pulling away, sort of breaking a lot of norms that I kind of understood where I was. Ooh, what were some of the norms you broke? Oh boy, okay. <laughs> okay, so this is like startling even to me. I don't know quite how I did this, but like I got to America when I was 12 and by 16, I had this Tamil boyfriend, which, yeah, I know, <laughs> which was wow. a really big deal for my community because, you know, Sinhalese Tamil people were fighting in Sri Lanka. Um, and I met this person and we were in a relationship for eight years um, early on, that in 16, for for American kid, is probably very normal. For a Sri Lankan kid, it's like, oh my God, you know, slut of the century. Were you sneaky? Oh, yeah. Did you have to meet him at meet him at the place by the thing and pretend to be doing yeah. homework? Yeah, for about a year. I mean, I heard, I heard. Yeah, for a year, I was doing, so I, I don't know. Between 12 and 16, I don't know what was going on, but I think I like, holy shit, okay, this is all different. Let me, <laughs> let me do, you know, I don't know what happened, but something happened, everything clicked. And I was also like, I don't, I'm not going to do anything the way my parents want or this society wants. I'm just not going to. Uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to choose, you know, um, my, my parents were an arranged marriage. It's unlikely that they would have wanted me or asked me to do that, although there was probably some intonation that that would happen. But, you know, they also didn't expect me to have a boyfriend at 16 um, and especially not a Tamil boyfriend. So I I was like the girl that the aunties were like telling their daughters not to be like or not to be around. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I kept it secret for a year and then my uncle found out and oh my God, uh, it was a big, horrible mess and everybody was really angry and they took my car away and blah, blah. It was a big, messy thing. And I got this reputation for being really rebellious and breaking a lot of rules and so that was all cool. After a while, everybody sort of calmed down and like, okay, that's fine. And then when I was 24, we got engaged. And then I was like, no, I actually don't want to marry him. So it was like another. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. They finally probably came around. It's like, well, at least she's marrying a Sri Lankan boy. Yeah. Because I'm sure there were members of your community who were like, not yeah. going to become partners. Like, it's America, right? You can meet people from everywhere, especially in Los Angeles. So they probably had just yep. finally eight years to come around, <laughs> have come around to this guy. And then you're like, no, nope. mm, <laughs> not so much. Wow. Uh, yes, I had quite it a was... reputation for quite a long time. I don't think people quite knew what to do with me. I don't, I'm not sure if they do still, but who knows, you know? I'm thinking about belonging somewhere. And the reputation that you're describing is actually probably would have been valuable in like the American teenager mm -hmm. <laughs> reputation. And so not belonging one place would actually kind of make you feel like you did belong in this other mm -hmm. place, right? This American teenage experience and sneaking out with boys. And I definitely remember doing quite a bit of that. My mother's family was Italian and it was always like, you don't call the boys, they call you. But if you had to wait for them to call, they'd never call. So you did. <laughs> Say you were calling Maggie, but then call the boys and um, definitely say you were going to Maggie's and then go meet the boys. Yep. And so yep. 
I do remember that feeling like your family just didn't understand the rules of like teenager land. And so you could either like teach them the rules and they still wouldn't get it, or you could just go and do your own thing. Exactly, Um, exactly. And the stakes were so high. I think, you know, like I just also think about my parents. My God, they'd like just gotten here. They're trying to survive. Uh, economically and then they've got this daughter who you know is not just breaking their rules but breaking community rules so if the whole community didn't get involved they probably would have been more okay with it was your dad able to be an engineer here how much of his identity was Mm -hmm. was shifted when they came here that's such a good question you know he started off being a parking lot assistant uh you know one yeah And then he started working for the county. And I remember he always talks about this. His first job was going through flood control channels in L.A. on a little board on wheels on his stomach, sort of checking them. And he would say there would be these black widow spiders. It was just really horrific. He worked his way from there to becoming the engineer in charge of uh, the whole freeway system for L.A. County. (laughs) For like for a few decades, I think, like just, you know, there's a lot of bridges we'll drive by when when I'm in L.A. And he'll be like, oh, I worked on that one. I worked on that one. He's talking about the freeway over over Ponsonville. You're like, oh, wow, your stamp is on all of this, you know. And, you know, he learned engineering in Sri Lanka. He was like the first batch of engineering students in Peradeniya, which is our big university. Um, and his education was just as good, if not better, than the American engineers, you know. I love hearing when stories actually work out mm-hmm. like that, because mm-hmm. that's often not what we hear. So then how did you not have to become, I have friends whose parents have come from other countries, and the understanding is that you'll be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. So which did you <laughs> pretend to be? Or which did you pretend to study for? Oh my God, that's so good. <laughs> um uh, I have to answer that by being by saying my sister is an extremely successful lawyer in LA. So <laughs> she she did that and took some of the some of the pressure off. But she's also nine years younger than me, so um, the timing doesn't quite work for taking the pressure off. Um, I pretended that I was going to be a lawyer. I <laughs> I went to undergrad to study English, and then I was going to quote unquote apply to law school and. Then when I got there, I was like, no, I'm applying to a PhD program. And they were like, oh, OK, that's respectable. Right. Um, you're going to be a doctor. You, that's good. Um, but the dropping out of the PhD was really hard, especially for my dad. That was a real bummer for him. We've had to have several conversations like ongoing Uh to, you know, (laughs) explaining that I haven't like wasted my life because I dropped out of a PhD program. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of Seven Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes. Can you crawl inside of that decision? Do you? I know that it was September of, you said, 2001. Yeah. I know that was a fraught time for our country, but it sounds like you had made that decision before 9-11. So can you tell me, why did you 
Why'd you decide not to? Yeah, yeah. Um, I So it took about, I want to say, five, four or five months. I was at UC Riverside. I was working with a professor I really love. Um, her name is Parama Roy. She's at Berkeley now. She's just incredible. Um, and I was all set to write this dissertation. I was working on um, Krishnamurti, who is a this like Indian philosopher, writer. He's just incredible. Um, and somewhere along the line, I just kind of started writing fiction. I don't even... I can't really articulate what happened, but I just wanted to write a novel, which made no sense. I'd not even written a short story before, like nothing, right? Like, oh my gosh. nothing. <laughs> I know. I don't think I knew I that. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I don't know. It's really audacious. It's really strange. But some part of me was like, I have to write this book. I don't know what it is. Um, it started off with very different characters and who ended up in the in the book that you have read. Um, and I started doing that more and more. And I went to my professor and I said, hey, I think I'm writing a book. Like, can I turn this in instead? And she said, no, this is an academic program, right? Like, uh, we're not going to take fiction. And then I kind of like, you know, nobody should do this. But I went... <laughs> 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 this is... Probably. Everyone is going to want to no. do this after you tell this story. I, I always want to do the things they tell me not. I want to touch the stuff they tell me not to touch. I want to go to the places they tell me not to go to. And I'm going to want to do whatever it is you're about oh, to describe. God. But, you know, other people feel free to listen. I, I just, like, dropped out. Didn't really tell a lot of people, which was helpful, right? People sort of found out. Um <laughs> And the aunties were calling each other. Yeah, obviously it was a big deal for the program, but I just disappeared, I think. Uh, probably not the greatest thing to do to a really nice professor. I, she and I have made up. She teaches my book. It's great. Um, but that was like September 1st. And then when September, like 11 days ago, like everything went crazy and no one paid attention anymore, which was kind of great, you know? Um, and so I would teach three days a week and the rest of the time I was writing and I literally lived in this big house full of undergrads they were really studious so it wasn't like party time right um I was just writing for a long long time and figuring it out and I think my preparation the PhD had been my preparation because I was reading so much I was really reading really deeply I was in already in conversation with the writers that I wanted to be in conversation with I just had never written anything before. So Island of a Thousand Mirrors is actually literally the first thing I've ever published. <laughs> <laughs> you are bonkers. That's not how it, you, folks, if you're out there <laughs> wanting to start, I'm absolutely aspirationally, you should, you should definitely read everything Naomi Munavira has written and aspire to be like her. But understand <laughs> if your first novel does not turn out to be even an island of 100 mirrors or even an island of 14 mirrors. For most people, it'll just be a broken mirror on the ground that you'll laugh at and then put in a drawer and start again. Oh, friend. For most people. Oh, friend, friend, oh let, me, let me tell you, though. Um, took 10 years to write, right? So I'd say I wrote probably, you know what, what that book is? It's a slim book, but it's probably about 20 to 30% of what I wrote, right? So 
uh, a lot of writing and writing and getting rid of it and writing again and writing again and like, what the fuck is this? This is terrible. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Who am I? This, this all might sound familiar to some of you. Um, <laughs> um, I've heard a thing or two about that. <laughs> this is insane. Okay, but I want to do this. I don't know what this is. You know, it wasn't, I didn't even go to writing conferences until way later. And my friend was like, you should go to writing conferences. Oh, that's a thing. Yes. <laughs> you know, Like, oh, right. I should do that. Um, and that was like, I don't know. I wrote secretly ish. I didn't really talk about my writing a novel very much. I, for about 10 years, it took a really long time. You know, the book was published in 2012. So yeah, overnight, I don't think you were saying overnight, but like, it's a weird ass story, but just also like a lot of painstaking work. Okay, so tell people about the writing life. Like, what's awful about it and what's wonderful about it? Take us through the writer's life. Yeah, yeah. What's awful about it is is you will constantly, unless you're very unusual, you'll constantly be battling with self-doubt, self-loathing, depression. Uh, You might have a voice that's like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you doing this? Um, That voice is probably not going to go away. It doesn't go away for most of us. I know a lot of writers um, I know I'm, I write in, I'm in Oakland and I write with these two writers who are in New York and we've been doing this since pandemic where they start writing at 10, which is 7am for me. So we write together and this one, I mean, they're both brilliant. They're both just fabulous and brilliant. One of them is on her third book and I'm on my third book and she's like, Oh God, I feel so terrible. I feel like I'm a husband, blah, blah, blah. And I can say to her, shut up, right? Like, you're so brilliant. You're so just spectacular. Your book is so amazing. Um, And she will buy it a little bit, but, you know, she'll say the same thing to me. And I'm like, oh, God, yeah, we don't quite buy it. Um, Anne-Marie is making some faces. I'm making faces. People can't see me make faces, but I... Oh my gosh. So, okay. I asked you to tell me about the writing life and you basically told me that you will be an amazing writer if you're lucky and you'll doubt yourself all the time. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> what, what else? Like, do you at least have really sharp pencils? Oh. Is there like a cool notebook? What is, what's awesome it's about awesome. The, writing oh my life, God. the writing life? There's, I mean, there's nothing better to do with your life, right? It's like, I guess for back of a letter wor- better word, it's sacred. It is sacred work. You know, we're storytellers. We have a very, very old job. This job was around since the beginning of the species. We make meaning out of the world. We take all of the raw material and the craziness and the different things that are happening and we make meaning out of it. You know, we tell story. There's nothing better. There's I there's nothing I want to do with my life besides that. It's sacred. It's completely spiritual work. I love thinking about it that way. I always tell people that's just an itch I need to scratch, mm-hmm. that I can't not scribble. Mm-hmm. That as as difficult as it can be some days when I'm typing just nonsense, mm-hmm. it's harder if I'm not, yeah. that that I feel compelled to come to a screen the way or to a notebook the way others feel compelled to do what is 
you know, the, the struggle of their own lives. But I, I love the idea of thinking of it as sacred work that has been, been around, that storytellers have been in every community. You, you've lived in Sri Lanka and, and Nigeria and America, that there have been, since the beginning of those places, storytellers. There have been people who sought to keep the, the tales and the history, but also the love and the sorrow alive for generations to come. Yeah. All and your, your work clearly does that. Thank you. All of that, right? Like the storyteller, it's the oldest job. There was always somebody around the fire who was telling the story whose job was to like weave the tribe or the people together through story. I would like to know, how do you know when a novel is finished? I've never finished one. So how do you know when it's done? Yeah, you know, that's such a good question. I was on a panel, I'm in Oakland, so I was on a, the San Francisco Literary Festival just happened. It's called Lit Quake. I was on a panel, I was the moderator for a panel called The Art of the Novel. And somebody asked this question, and this novelist, Carol Edgarian, had this amazing response. She said, you know, there's a difference between finished and exhausted, right? So you might get to the place where you are exhausted and you're like, I cannot even look at this anymore. I just, I'm done. I'm obviously done. It's complete. There it is. And I've gotten there so many times. I'm like, <laughs> it's done. It's great it's as good as it can get um then I put it away I let it cool off I put it in a drawer for two to three months you want to come back to it with like the eyes of somebody else you want to feel like it's not yours somebody else has written this um and then you're like oh my god this is really shitty (laughs) this is so shitty right let me rewrite or you might get to that place and be like okay it's time for someone else to look And then, you know, I'm looking at somebody's manuscript right now. And I love this person dearly. And when they sent it to me, they were like, I'm done. It's been a decade. I worked so hard. I'm like, okay, I'm excited. They're a pretty brilliant writer. I'm like, oh, shit, right. They're just exhausted. They're not done. Mm -hmm. So then I got a text from them being like, oh, the other first reader was like, yeah, you're not done. I'm like, yeah, friend, you're not done. Um, and, you know, like, God, they probably cried for two days, right? <laughs> <laughs> because they want to be done. I want to be done. Um, but they're not. Like, the work needs more. The work. Uh, so you don't know. You don't really know when you're done, right? Somebody else will probably say to you, okay, now we've all worked on it and there's nothing else to do. That's when you know you're done. Basically, when your agent's like, okay, girl, like, you're done. Okay, cool. <laughs> Now we're going to try and sell this thing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, there's, not, there's not a lot of hope in that sentence, no, except is. for the idea that at some point other people will will read your work and they'll say, I think we've got it. I think I think we're there. Mm-hmm. So you do at some point have to trust writing is transactional. You may not want it to be, but you're not actually writing this just for you. You are writing it for a reader yeah and that they are they're part of that journey yeah absolutely (laughs) oh so what rewrites have you had to do on this book that's still in progress so my agent she okay so I write the whole goddamn book and it's about this very bad man and this woman and they're sort of back and forth um and I write him as a writer (laughs) I was teaching 
and the summer program at Ashland and my agent called and I'm like, oh my God, you guys, I have to take this. You guys just talk amongst yourselves. I'm getting feedback. Um, and then I went and talked to her and she said, book's great. Love it. Everything's awesome, except I don't want him to be a writer. <sighs> Which I'm like, kill me. Just stab my eyes out, right? Just, yeah, just, you know, I'll just go in the backyard and dig a big hole. Um <laughs> And then it's I, not like you can just sub out no, the word writer no. for painter, because that's what I always think. Oh, just, no, just no. when he says, I'm going to go write, say, I'm going to go paint. But it's not how that works. No, everything is different. Everything has to change. Uh, everything. So then, it, you know, instead of like writerly stuff, it has to be painterly stuff, right? So every, plot changes. Like, why is he in L.A.? Every, it has to be different. What's his life? He didn't go to writing school. He went to art school. Let me go interview art professors right like his way of seeing the world is entirely different the bad thing he's doing it's not about writing it's like through the lens of painting okay let me go and learn everything about painting um that rewrite took about a year I'd say like yeah okay your problem is that you're too you're you're too good of a writer if you had been lazy and worse at writing, you could have gotten that done in six months. Know, right? Your problem was you tried to do a good job. I know. Which, I of know. course, you did. No, I know. Oh, I'm excited to read those pages. It's ridiculous. Um, okay, so then I did all of that, and I sent it to her, and she's like, awesome. But now this part that's his backstory, it's not scary anymore. <laughs> the I'm scary like, painter. Okay, okay lady, I... Super trust you because you're uh, awesome and you represent all kinds of amazing people. So, yes, let's do that. So I rewrote the backstory. I just got done. I'm going to send it to her soon and we'll see what she says. She's probably going to be like, you know, put in a unicorn. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But I trust her, you know, like I trust her because like I'm at the place where I don't see it anymore. I, I know it, but she's seeing something else and she's guided other writers. So I'd like totally, I trust her. <laughs> you feel like it's a stronger work because when it was time, you showed this to a reader mm-hmm. or in, in this case, a couple of readers, but this, this person is able to help you make the book stronger Yes, because it was time. Exactly. Okay, I think we often think of being a writer as this solo, lonely enterprise, and I do spend a lot of time by myself with my words. Mm -hmm. But I also think that your writing is in conversation with other writers, and I do think that you're part of a larger writing community. So I'm wondering, can you tell us who are writers out there doing the good work, truthfully past or present, who you admire? Oh my God, so many, so many. The panel I was on, we did the last question in the Proust questionnaire, which is who would you invite to dinner, right? Uh And there were four writers and all of us picked writers. They were like just, you know, Virginia Woolf is coming and Tolstoy is coming, but not the old Tolstoy, the young Tolstoy. It was amazing. Um, So I'll just answer that question and then I'll get into it. So my people were um, Oscar Wilde, because he's just amazing and I don't he can do things with sentences that are just brilliant um Anais Nin I love her the French writer Colette uh these are the dead ones right the living ones are Michael Andanji who is the Sri Lankan Canadian writer fuck man 
as a writer, you get to pick who your parents are. Ooh, who are your literary parents? <laughs> I know. Is that fun? Is that amazing? Mm-hmm. You get to pick your literary parents and you can have as many of them as you want. I'm a product of so-and-so. Um, Arundhati Roy. I'm right. reading the God, God, I know. I know. The God of small things. Oh. She's done everything. Talk about voice of a child, you know? Talk about like just intensely inhabiting the voice of children in the context of history. It's astounding. Um, and then James Baldwin, holy fuck. Everything he says, everything he writes, like he talked about America like no one else has. He said everything about America that we need to know. It's all there. Toni Morrison. Um, I don't know. Reading Beloved is like, uh, it's every education that you need. It's all of it. And then, okay, so contemporary people, Alexander Chi is just gorgeous. His book, um, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, is just amazing. There's a essay in there called, with the same name, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, I think. No, no, no. I think it's 50 Ways to Be a Novelist, and it lists it. Um, and then Carmen Maria Machado. Oh, you introduced me to her. Oh, my gosh. You uh, you introduced me to her, her writing and her work mm-hmm. and how amazing to be alive at a time when you guys are both writing mm-hmm. and creating. You know, here's a tip. You don't need an MFA if you just go and read In the Dream House. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Oh, we're going to link we're going to link to all this folks because this is this is a masterclass you're getting right now for free. We're going to we're going to sign people up to uh to tip to tip the artist here um cuz this is great stuff. Oh, oh I I think I'm remembering the quote from Alexander Chi. It's something like of course a novel is a mask, but not for the writer and not for the reader. For something that the writer brings in from the back of a room like a lion on a chain. Wow. Oh my gosh. I have not read that particular essay, but I know yeah. Alexander Chi. I'm going to look that one up. Yeah. Seriously, this could devolve into you and I just <laughs> chatting about, like, this is all, we could just do this for hours. I'd be like, oh my gosh, did you read this? You'd be like, oh my gosh. Yes. And, and people will be like, woman, we've been here for an hour and a half and you got to <laughs> wrap this up. Okay, so I, I have to wrap up because that's what we have to do here. But I'm going to give you... Um, the same wrap-up questions we give everyone because folks like to hear what you have to say. And, um, okay, it's just quick multiple choice for you. Mm-hmm. So just pick one, um, dogs or cats? Oh, my God, cats. <laughs> With I've small actually, dogs that are like cats. <laughs> also, I really like those. I've actually been following your progress because we're <laughs> Facebook friends. Uh-huh. With one cat in particular on your social media feed. What is that cat's name? Her name is Bastet, which I realize a lot of people don't know what that is. That's the Egyptian cat goddess. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure that this particular Egyptian cat goddess was like <laughs> not even in the frame in the beginning because you're like, cat is hiding, will not come out ever. But you have worked your your cat whisperer magic because now I see the cat just like sprawled out on your keyboard, <laughs> sprawled out on your keyboard and just just inhabiting your space. So maybe you are part cat um, goddess too. Um, okay, coffee or tea? Coffee in America, tea in Sri Lanka. Um, mountains or beach? Beach. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Are you a risk taker or the person who knows where the band-aids are? Oh, Risk taker, probably. Oh my God, risk taker and writing band aids in other ways. I don't. Mm, 
both. Interesting. Interesting. Mickey Kendall had a good answer for that too. She's like, well, I jump off of things holding band-aids. I, oh. I, there's, yes, there's good, there's good stuff in there. Okay. What's a, what's a movie or a book? I'll give you a choice. What's a movie or a book that you just love? Black Swan and Life of Brian. Okay. That is, <laughs> that is one of the craziest combinations ever. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Got to let the it's you know what that is like. That's kind of like um the big chill meets the yeah, <laughs> which is my third novel. So I hope people want to read that. <laughs> I think they do. I think they do. Oh my gosh. Okay, what's a favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, uh, coffee. Yeah, that's lovely. All right, and if we were um, last one, if we were to take a picture of you joyful doing something you love, what would we see you doing? Swimming. That's right. You love that water imagery is, is, um, I think it's in, in both the books. I don't know if it's in the third, but oh, I, yeah. I see a lot of that. Yeah. Just, um, the birth and the life and the, also the drowning. It's all, it's all, I, okay. yeah, it's all water. It's all water. You know, I think some writers are like earth writers and some writers are swimming water writers. I'm firmly in like the swimming, you know, I'm from, I'm from an Island, you know, and it's there. Yeah, no, I can yeah. see this. Ah, Naomi Munavira, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for reminding us um, to pursue our creative dreams that deep within all of us is this desire to pursue what we were meant to, even if that means going against the practical advice of of others. We need to do the good, great work of our souls. I think Carmen Maria Machado whose work you introduced me to, I think she says, um, go write the beautiful burning thing. Mm-hmm. And again and again, you do that. And I'm going to be on the lookout for more from you. Okay, so folks, in the meantime, you can find Naomi's books, um, What Lies Between Us, and I'll, I'll link to it and also to The Island of a Thousand Mirrors. You can find them at your local public library, at your independent bookstore near you. And... Folks, to all of our listeners, we're wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourselves, be good to one another, and we'll see you again on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.